100 years after some women won the vote, People's History Museum, the home of ideas worth fighting for, explores how we have how far we have come in the fight for representation and how far we have to go. I'm Helen Antrobus, and join me as episode by episode, I look at some of the incredible objects and stories in Represent Voices 100 Years On. Represent Voices 100 Years On is a crowdsourced exhibition designed by PHM with community groups and individuals to create a look into the past, present and future of representation. How are we represented? Do we feel represented? And what's the difference between the vote and the voice? These are just some of the questions that we ask throughout the exhibition. The reason it's so significant is because 100 years ago, the Representation of the People Act was passed. Before that, there had been over 50 years of campaigning by members of the women's suffrage movement for women to win the vote and become enfranchised. That's really important here in Manchester because Manchester was one of the first places to have a women's suffrage society and to be one of the heartlands of the fight for the vote. I'm joined here today by Chloe Rumsey, who's the conservator at People's History Museum. Chloe, will you tell me a bit about how you helped develop the centenary exhibition at People's History Museum? So I worked on um, some of the, a lot of the objects for this exhibition with my um, colleague, the senior textiles conservator at the People's History Museum. Um, and I'm an objects conservator, so I worked on all of the things um, that aren't textile, so the paperwork, the photographs, um, cleaned them, made them safe, so did any repairs that I needed to do, and then mounted, particularly mounted all of the flat works that needed to be framed up. Um, and that's so that they can be um, displayed safely for everyone to see them um, and then can be unmounted at the end of the exhibition. Now, we're here in Represent Voices 100 Years On. Um, we spent a long time curating and planning this exhibition, so it's really wonderful to see it all up on the walls for people to see. Um, and the section we're gonna talk about today is the historical section that really sets the scene of the rest of the exhibition. Um, and that's telling the story of 1918 to 2018. The design of the exhibition is quite interesting. Um, it's designed to look like a feminist zine. If you don't know what a zine is, it's a handmade magazine made by activists and campaigners over the last sort of oh, 50 years. Um, they're often photocopied, they're often made up of loads of contributions and that's how we wanted Represent to look. We also worked with community groups, individuals, to create a truly crowdsourced exhibition. So as you walk around the exhibition, you won't only see stories from the past, but stories from the present as well, and the fight for representation that carries on today. Now walking through the exhibition, the first object we come across here is the Parliamentary Labour Party photograph. Now this photograph um, represents the first ever Labour Party MPs who were voted in in 1906. Even though the Labour Party had been active for a number of years before this, this was the first time that they'd actually been voted into Parliament. And the photograph really commemorates this sort of significant moment in Labour and working class history. Chloe, does it surprise you to know that this photograph is the most representative Parliament had ever been? Yes, because I can only see differences in facial hair. They're all <laughs> men. I see a lot of men in this photograph. There are no women. Uh, they're different ages. Um, some of them are sitting down, but no, no variation really. The, the variation actually comes from the fact that they're all from very diverse working class backgrounds. So even though we wouldn't see this as as representative today certainly not in our sort of how we would want parliament mm -hmm. to look today and um, because yeah it is just a lot of white men 
actually, because of their working class backgrounds, it made it more representative. Um, on the subject of facial hair, though, that man in the middle of the photograph is Keir Hardy, and he was the leader of the Labour Party, and he was a huge advocate for women's suffrage. And when he first went to visit a woman called Selena Cooper, who's a very, very significant um, suffragist, working class suffragist from Lancashire, her daughter Mary thought that it was Father Christmas. That is amazing. So that is really Keir cute Hardy, Father story. Christmas. Um, but because he, like I say, he's a huge supporter of women's suffrage, okay. and to have that as a leader of a party who have seats in the House of Commons, that's a big deal. He can really start to advocate women's suffrage. And you know, in our main galleries, we've got the first ever minutes of the Parliamentary mm-hmm. Labour Party, which are kept very safely. Um, on display on permanent display in main gallery one at people's history museum and on the list of things they have there you can actually see women's suffrage is amongst the minutes of things they've been discussing so we know that they really brought it into the heart of parliament Mm -hmm. as very active supporters of it now you spent a lot of work you spent a lot of time working on this photograph didn't you I did, yes. I mean, there's a lot of uh, conservation you can, one can do on, on photographs as, and photographs as a type of, of museum object. But for this one, in this case, I was mainly just rescuing it from a really, really bad mount. Um, it was, stu- it is still stuck to the back of a really um, horrible fibrous backboard, um, which I haven't removed because it's very dangerous for it. Um, but on top of that was another piece of hard board, um, a hard compressed fiber board uh, stuck to the front of the photograph at the sides as a mount. And that was basically very, very acidic, um, which was accelerating all of the different types of deterioration that happens with photographs. Um, what sort of deterioration is that? Well, you can see around the edges, actually, um, there's a difference in colour. You can see where the old mount, that old mount used to be. And it wasn't the original mount. I think it was probably stuck on there in about probably the 40s, maybe, um, just by style. And you can see the line where that's been overlying the face of the photograph, cutting off some of the actual image itself. Um, And if you look really closely, you can see there's a sort of slightly slightly metallic looking iridescence and that's called um, silver mirroring Um, and what that is is the the deterioration through humidity um, and oxidization has actually caused part of the the um, the substance on the surface of the paper to make the photograph deteriorate and then gather on the top layer so you could it actually obscures as the silver particles obscure the actual face of the photograph that sounds really terrifying. <laughs> it can be. It can be really, really, really bad. This not too bad with this one. There's been a bit of fading, but you can generally see the rest of it. It's just an interesting way of looking at objects. Now, we have the photograph, again, on our main galleries, but it's actually a print of the photograph. It's a replica. So it's really exciting to have the original on display for Represent Voices 100 it's years really on. really nice to see the original. Now, you might be wondering... Why this part of the gallery, this sort of section that tells the story of what led to the representation of the People Act being passed, starts with a, gr- a group of m- white male politicians. But it really tells a story of what was happening inside of Parliament. Now, on the outside of Parliament, there were groups such as the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, 
the Women's Social and Political Union and the Women's Freedom League really fighting for the right to vote. And they weren't really being taken seriously in Parliament. It wasn't until the acceleration of militant action from the WSPU, Emmeline Pankhurst's group of militant, non-politically associated suffragettes, as they became known, um, started to really increase pressure on the government. But one couldn't have, have succeeded without the other. One of the big questions we've had this year is, what won the vote? Was it the militancy of the suffragettes or was it the peaceful law-abiding petitions of the suffragettes? And the truth is, they sat hand in hand. Chloe, do you know where the term suffragette comes from? I don't. So the suffragette, which has become quite a a popular term it became a popular term it was actually meant to be an insult as a way to describe the wspu who were causing all sorts of problems and getting themselves arrested but they really embraced it they reclaimed the word in a way and that's why we know them as suffragettes and the law-abiding nuwss as suffragists and we're about to move on to the a very very exciting object in the exhibition which really illuminates the history of the women's suffrage movement. Um, it's an object that's quite close to both of our hearts, isn't it, Chloe? It is. uh, we've spent the last year nurturing <laughs> and getting very excited for this to go on display, haven't we? We have, yes. So yes. it's very exciting to be talking about it today. Now, as we walk around the exhibition, we pass photographs and prints that tell the story of the historic fight for representation. Some of these go as far back as the early 1800s. They're stories of chartists, they're stories from Peterloo. There's even some stories from conscientious objectors in World War One, which you can hear about in a later uh, episode of the podcast. But the object that we end up standing in front of is the Manchester WSPU banner. The banner is absolutely beautiful. It doesn't quite fill the wall that it sits on, but it's so vibrant and so colourful that it feels like it fills the space. It's rich, deep purple velvet, and it's edged with a white, sort of almost off-white fabric now. And it's emblazoned with the words, Women's Social and Political Union, first in the fight, founded by Mrs. Pankhurst in 1903. Emmeline Pankhurst founded the WSPU in Manchester, so to have the Manchester Suffragette banner here on display this year is one of the most important things we could have done in this exhibition. But it wasn't all plain sailing. This banner hasn't been lovingly cared for by the museum for the last 20 years, waiting for this moment. In fact, it's had a very, very exciting recent history, and it's become somewhat of a celebrity. Chloe, can you tell me the story of this amazing banner and how it came to be in our collection? I can tell you parts of it, yeah, it's a very long story and I think we don't really know bits of it. Um, what I can say is that um, it was kept in uh, a filing cabinet, as far as we know, it was kept in a filing cabinet for 10 years in a charity offices. Um, and now I have to say, this filing cabinet must have had extremely stable environmental conditions because it's in such beautiful condition. Um, it was folded with the velvet, the beautiful face side, the velvet of the banner on the inside, so only the back of it was exposed. Um, and that's protected it from light, from water damage. We see water damage on the back, but not on the front. Um, 
dusts, anything you can think of that damages fabrics, basically. It's been protected from that. And that is just one of the, the, you know, that's a stroke of luck, really, that that was was done. Um, Because the back is quite badly deteriorated, um, but the front is just, you know, it could have been used 20 years ago. And could you, so it has, the banner has so many beautiful key features. Um, Can you tell me about some of them, such as the embroidered lettering? and the tassels, because the People's History Museum has one of the biggest collections of political banners. I certainly have never seen a banner like this before in our collection. Is there a reason why it looks so different from the other banners we have in? So it's it's not a, it's not your standard um, classic trade union banner. It's, it's um, velvet, as we said, um, in two colors. If you think ecclesiastical, banner then that's that's so like it could have been made for a church cathedral it's got that yeah so it was made by thomas brown and sons and they were quite famous ecclesiastical furnishers it has an impression of great pride and great reverence in what it actually represents now you use the word reverence and i think that's fantastic for me to then jump on and talk a bit about the history (laughs) of the banner because reverence it's holds in its stead the words first in the fight founded by Mrs Pankhurst. This banner was actually made for a very important event. It was made for something called Women's Sunday. Now this happened on the 21st of June in 1908. Half a million men and women gathered from across the country to hear Emmeline Pankhurst and her WSPU speak. There were over 20 platforms in Hyde Park. um, So you could go to different ones to hear different speakers. The one from Manchester was one of the biggest platforms and had some of the most significant speakers on it. Now, I'm from Manchester and I think it's a very Mancunian thing to do to remind the rest of the country where exactly the suffrage movement started. They very proudly emblazoned first in the fight on this banner to remind everybody that Manchester were the first ones in this battle and they were going to carry on fighting. Now, the colours here, we talked about the rich purple and the white, which has faded slightly, hasn't it, Chloe, over time? The white hasn't. The white has become dirty over time with handling, and that's one of the nicest things about it, actually. Some people think, oh, conservation means making it, things all clean and bright and sparkling again, but what we've done with this is actually retain a lot of the soiling that, well, all of the soiling that has occurred on to, on the white that's visible on the white because there's there's hand marks on it there's you know there's areas where you you can imagine women holding it up particularly on the top left side there's a there's there's an area where it looks like it's been gripped by a palm it's really it's it's that kind of thing that we wouldn't want to remove that is fantastic and i love seeing these colors on this banner because they're more significant than i think we originally realized because on this woman's sunday this is the first event that those famous suffragette colors green white and purple are ever used the green stands for hope the white for purity and the purple for dignity there is a big myth going around at the moment that it's actually give women the vote green white and violet and that's not true (laughs) the colors were devised by emmeline pethwick lawrence who was another Emmeline who was a huge, huge advocate of women's suffrage and she was one of the leaders of the WSPU and she was the one who kind of thought up these colours and she records very clearly that these are the reasons she thought up these colours. So to have a banner in those colours, this was probably one of the first ever banners made in the suffragette, green, white and purple. 
So the banner is absolutely beautiful, but it doesn't quite tell the story that we originally wanted Represent to tell. We didn't want to do suffragette the exhibition, despite our vast collections of suffrage material. We wanted to tell a different story, the story of the, the past fight for representation, but also the future fight and what's going on at the moment. We also wanted to explore the stories of working class women. Emmeline Pankhurst was a great woman and she advocated a great fight, but she wasn't perfect. And that's always the problem with making heroes out of people from history because she wasn't perfect. She was a middle-class woman with middle-class outlooks who ran the WSPU like a general would run an army. She was particularly autocratic and that caused rifts and divides across the movement. So to have a banner with her name emblazoned on it seemed to defeat the point of what we were trying to do, which was tell a broader examination of stories of different women of different classes um, of different backgrounds. However, luckily, we were able to, through family members of the woman who embroidered the banner, find out about why the banner had been in the charity shop. The banner was actually in the possession of a woman called Elizabeth Ellen Chatterton. Elizabeth was a working class woman. She was a seamstress and she was a trade unionist. And through all of these things, we know that even though the banner has the name Mrs. Pankhurst emblazoned on it, it was actually lovingly, we've heard, embroidered by a young working class woman who the fight for the vote clearly meant so much to as well. Now, you mentioned, Chloe, the banner with the, the sort of soiling marks on it. What I always like to say about this banner here, when you stand in front of it, it does look so impressive, so beautiful. But those hand marks at the top of the banner, those, those dirt marks, that wouldn't have been Emmeline Pankhurst, would it? Well, I mean, it's very unlikely. It's It's... Definitely unlikely. Emmeline Pankhurst would not have been the woman holding up, hoisting this banner because Emmeline Pankhurst was a leader. She wasn't a foot soldier. And when we're talking about this banner, it's important to look at those stories as well, that it represents not only the leaders of a campaign, but all those working class women, those anonymous women whose names we may never know or never hear about, who carried it and fought alongside it. Now, we could stand in front of the banner for the whole tour of Represent. There's so much to be said on it. But nearby lingers an object that you probably wouldn't expect to see right next to a banner praising Mrs Pankhurst and Manchester's role in the fight for women's suffrage. In the case behind us is a small leaflet. It looks quite obscure because it's next to so many different objects, letters and documents from our archives that really highlight the breadth of the fight for women's suffrage. But this object, while I say it's one of my favourite objects, I like it because it really tells a different story. This is the Why I Oppose Women's Suffrage pamphlet. Chloe, what do you think about this? Well, I'm looking at the words oppose women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just didn't expect to see it. Well, it's quite interesting, this organisation. This is the National League for Opposing Women's Suffrage. And they create lots of propaganda against women's suffrage throughout this. They very strongly believe that women should not have the vote. Um, the main argument for this is that women already have their roles. They have very domestic roles. They have roles of being a mother and a wife that shouldn't be neglected. And they feel that if women get involved in politics, this is what will happen. Would it surprise you to know that the league actually started out as the Women's League against opposing women's suffrage? Yeah, I'm always going to be surprised by that. A lot of women, a lot of high profile women really didn't believe that women should have the vote. They believe that they should stay in their lane, essentially. 
Um, and it was then joined by the Men's League for Opposing Women's Suffrage before it became the National League of Opposing Women's Suffrage. Um, and I'm going to tell you about a, a gentleman who, one of the most famous anti-suffragists of the day. And he's a man called Lord, Lord George Nathaniel Curzon. And I like this because there was actually a rhyme going round of about him at the time and it was my name is George Nathaniel Curzon and I am the most serious person <laughs> which sums him up he's really not happy about the idea that women would get the vote and his views were shared by a lot of people one of my favorite things that he says is he was a high up member of the aristocracy he went from being foreign secretary he had a lot of high profile roles in government and he was a huge part of the aristocracy, which means he had lots of parties and attended lots of social events. Um, and there was a young, well, she wasn't young at the time, a woman called Frances Balfour. And she was the daughter of the Duke of Argyle. And she was actually a lead suffragist. She was one of the first women to form um, a National Society of Women's Suffrage. Um, so she's a big name in the fight for the vote. And he writes to his friend, must I invite that red-headed tiger cat, Francis Balfour, to my party? He really doesn't want to associate himself with any of these suffragists or suffragettes. Having red hair myself. It's you. I'd love to be called a red-headed tiger cat. Um, sadly, that's not clicked on, that nickname. Um, now, thank you. Yeah, you can call me, you can call me that. Now, the anti-suffragist pamphlet that's here decorates a lot of the views that men like Lord Curzon would have held. Um, and one of my favourite things when we look at it, when we look at the, the first thing that it says, they're concerned that once this is all brushed under the carpet, once these women realise that they're never going to get the vote and stop, the young women who have been radicalised by the older, awful women, they're going to be nuisances in society because they'll be fit for nothing. That's essentially what it says. They think this will really warp the mind of young women. But the biggest argument in it that we can't actually see because we've only been able to display it closed and we can just see the front page, can't we? What's inside it is it says there are more women than men in the world. If we give them the vote, they will overpower us. <laughs> so there's this element of real fear. There's no idea of equality. They feel they're that it either, they? they're really not hiding it. They, they think that that's what will happen. Um, now, while we're talking about this leaflet, Chloe, this case was... You may remember how excited I was by this case, this opportunity to display loads of different documents from the archive. Um, how important is it to keep these paper documents safe? And what do you have to do um, in the conservation studio to make sure they stay safe throughout the exhibition? So what we've done is we've, we've done what we refer to as flat mounting, which is um, essentially strapping with conservation grade um, uh, polyester strapping to mount card which is an acid free card um, that what that does is basically keep everything flat um, and in the right place so nothing sort of joggles about with the movement of, of visitors walking around um, it also means that it's elevated off the surface that the, the the surface of the bottom of the case now the case is great it was made specially for the exhibition it was made recently which means that um, the wood is very fresh and it does what we call off gassing um, now to seal in those gases those gases can be very acidic they can be um, quite harmful particularly to paper objects um, so we need to we needed to 
So what we did was we used a very fine solution of um, a type of conservation grade glue that we use um, and I painted that onto the bottom of the case before the objects went in. I painted two layers on um, which means that basically it seals up any of those gases from ex escaping and it allows us to control the environment slightly more. So along with the mounting and that it means that we're, we're sort of keeping them as sort of separate from anything harmful as we can. So objects like this anti-suffrage leaflet stay safe for much longer and we can protect them because what I love about these objects is that, and hopefully you'll agree with me, is that they look like they've been handled. You can tell that they've been read and used. These aren't just copies that have been kept in an archive for a hundred years these would have been passed around exactly so this object here it's in fine condition i would refer to it as stable um in my conservation speak there's an area at the top left that is that is slightly torn but everything else is fine it is worn though and it's soiled and you can see marks on it from where people have handled it and and opened it um, and you can tell particularly from the hinge area that it has been used and handled a lot in its, in its time. I really like the idea. We often think when we think about the suffrage movement of all the leaflets and propaganda they printed, mm. we don't often remember that there was a very prominent anti-suffrage league. And I really like the, the, the thought of men like Curzon and other normal working class men and women who would have been part of this league, you know, swapping reading materials and sharing literature. Keeping it on the kitchen table. Oh yeah, yeah making, making sure, sure that they, they were really advised against a lot of working men and the leagues particularly targeted working class families by saying, if you let your wife run off and become a suffragette, she will abandon your household. It's almost as bad as being, as your wife having an affair. It's that <laughs> comparison. But despite Lord Curzon's efforts, as we walk down the case now we walk past some fantastic objects that i wish i could talk to you about now but we walk to the next object we're going to talk about which is probably the most important in the exhibition now it sits alongside every other paper object in this case it's quite unassuming it's small and it's not grand at all but the object that chloe and i are now standing in front of is the representation of the people act now the parliamentary archives have a copy of this and theirs has ribbons in it ours does not have ribbons in it ours instead has staples which aren't great normally for paper objects are they they're not well i mean it's it's not rare um and it is it is very common for these to rust and these staples in in this document have rusted it's caused a bit of staining but that's okay but that's what's nice about this object because it has got it's even got a bit of a pencil mark on it where someone's clearly made a note on it and um, because this was the local government copy this wasn't the the um, very impressive parliamentary copy that was kept in the parliamentary archives this was used and it was passed around and it was meant to be sort of deciphered in a way by local governments now it certainly looks much more careworn much more used it um, definitely does that's what i like about our copy now for those who don't know what the representation of the people act let me enlighten you the representation of the people act was passed on the 6th of february 1918 now it went uh, the date passed by without much fuss or grandeur because britain were at that time still involved with world war one and they were still fighting overseas but there had been a shift. People recognised that the war was probably coming to an end. 
And most of the young working class soldiers who had been fighting overseas didn't have the vote. They were still disenfranchised. And people often don't remember this, that still only 7 million people in the UK could vote before the Representation of the People Act had passed. Such a small number. Now, up until that point, the women's suffrage movement, the, while the WSPU had stopped their fighting, so they joined the war effort, they even renamed their newspaper, which was called The Suffragette, they renamed it The Britannia to sound as patriotic as possible. <laughs> but the law-abiding peaceful suffragists were pacifists and they decided that they would carry on the fight. And we're going to talk about one of those incredible pacifist suffragists um, just a little later on in this episode. But back to the representation of the People Act. Women had also taken on the roles that men had left behind when they went to war. And we have the entire collection in our archive of the War Emergency Workers National Committee, which is a bit of a mouthful. But what it did was demonstrate how many women really took on roles, not, in, not only in munitions factories, but trades roles as well. They um, became volunteer members of the fire service. They really did take on the, men, the roles of men and demonstrate that they could do them just as well. So all of this, this sort of need for the young working class men to have the vote as well, the need for the women who had fought so hard and been part of the war effort to have the vote, and also taking into consideration the tireless, tireless campaigning of the suffragists during this time meant that something had to change. And so the representation of the People Act was passed. And one of my favourite stories about this being passed is that Millicent Garrett Fawcett, who had spent so long as the leader at the helm of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, talks about the act being passed. And she says it was almost 50 years since she had heard John Stuart Mill stand up in Parliament. 50 years afterwards, 50 years on, finally some change has been made. And it was only some women who got the vote. Now... When you look at the object, Chloe, I think you'll agree with me. We see a list of sections. Now, I can't tell you, when you flick through the representation of the People Act, it's a hard read. You can't really follow what's going on in there. But the fourth section merely says, franchises, brackets, women, close brackets. Chloe, looking at that, what would you what would you think of that if you were sort of seeing that in local government? Would you really think I definitely wouldn't think that that was this huge significant document to women, but do you think we're looking at it retrospectively and we're putting a lot of significance on it? I really like the idea of this document being sent out. You know, the the parliamentary archives theirs is with the ribbons and everything all fancy. It's probably, you know, but the these ones, the one the the local government copies, it's sent out, probably sat on somebody's desk for a while. We don't know how who, what people saw the first time they looked at that. They might not have noticed that it said brackets women at the end. It's it's important to us because we know the history and we don't know but I do like the idea of it being seen by the first women in the office and eyebrows raised me too (laughs) that really makes me happy that this must have changed the lives of so many women but it's important here to talk about the men whose lives it changed as well because all men aged 21 and over won the vote Conscientious objectors, and I mentioned very, very briefly the conscientious objectors earlier because their story is very significant here. The conscientious objectors, these were the men who refused to fight on religious or moral or political grounds during World War I, were denied the vote. They couldn't vote. They were. They weren't allowed to vote. I didn't know that. Yeah, for five years after the war. 
it it's really shocking um particularly when we often consider the act as a hugely positive thing um with the only restrictions being for women mm -hmm. it wasn't it was for the conscientious objectors so because they were having their say either religiously morally or politically they were denied the vote by the government this is a continuing theme that those who disagreed with world war one were treated particularly badly post world war one um and we're going to talk about that briefly in a moment when we talk about the portrait that we can just see on a diagonal to our right as we look up she's sort of staring at us isn't she she's got her eye on us she knows that we're going to go and talk about her next i think um, the representation of the People Act came at a crucial time. It was just after World War One. Now, as we leave the Act behind, as we walk past all the objects that were so crucial in winning the, the right to vote in that representation of the People Act, we come round to the wall that's adjacent to the Manchester WSPU banner. And on it hangs a portrait, a rather beautiful portrait. It's in a beautiful gold frame. And it fills almost the length of the entire wall. The subject of the painting looks out at the viewer. She's got quite a stern expression on, but I feel like her eyes are really bright. This is Margaret Ashton. Has anyone heard of Margaret Ashton? Probably not. I've never heard of her. Now, Margaret Ashton at one point probably would have been as well known, if not probably more revered, as Emmeline Pankhurst here in Manchester. Yeah, she was a really huge part of the, of the city's history, particularly the city's fight for women's rights. And women's equality it's very well known that manchester is going to be getting a statue of emmeline pankhurst soon and margaret ashton was actually on the shortlist of women who could have been made into that statue but emmeline won emmeline beat margaret and the other contestants um, and that kind of reflects history a bit emmeline pankhurst has gone down in history as sort of the great leader of the women's rights movement here in Manchester, when there were actually much more women who have almost been written out of history. And one of those is Margaret Ashton. So it's really exciting that we have her portrait here. But like the banner, the portrait hasn't had an easy ride in life. In fact, it's had quite an interesting story. Now, Margaret Ashton was a suffragist, a law-abiding suffragist. She was a, a peace activist. She was a huge pacifist. She was the first female councillor in Manchester. Was she really? She sat in Manchester Town Hall alongside all the men at a time when most women couldn't actually vote. In fact, she became a councillor before the representation of the People Act was passed. So even she couldn't vote in general How election. did she do it? Um, well, there had actually been um, a law passed um, previously to say that women could vote in local, some local elections so women, some women could vote in some local elections and they could also be um, go as councillors and poor law guardians. Mm -hmm. So a poor law guardian is essentially a bit like a social worker. And they right. worked predominantly when they first came about in poor houses and workhouses to in improve the lives of, of the sort of women right. living there. In fact, Emmeline Pankhurst as well was a poor law guardian. But Margaret Ashton, so she was all of these things. She led a remarkable life. She was a trade unionist, so she was a huge member of the trade union movement, a huge supporter of the trade union movement. And in 1927, when she turned 70, the editor of the Manchester Guardian, a man called C.P. Scott, commissions this portrait to be painted of her by um, an artist called Henry Lamb. 
and the portrait is painted it's beautiful and when it is presented to the council the council reject it they don't want it um because margaret didn't support world war one so she was considered a traitor almost as if she'd committed treason so like stopping conscientious objectors from voting five years on exactly she was completely against that she refused to partake in any war effort whatsoever so in a way she was almost like a conscientious objector mm-hmm. she just wasn't fighting in the trenches the portrait was given to the university um but it sort of just got lost really into history they just lost it it just got lost it wasn't remembered it was kept sort of far away um i think it ended up in the stores of manchester art gallery Uh but it wasn't until 2006 that a historian called alison ronan sees reference to the painting in the papers of Margaret Ashton. So the papers of Margaret Ashton, you can actually access, they are at Central Library here in Manchester. Now, Margaret finds a reference to this and she goes on what I like to describe, but isn't the professional term, an Indiana Jones-like hunt <laughs> for the portrait. Um, and she finds it and after she finds it, it is rehung great acclaim in 2006. When it was rehung in Manchester Town Hall in 2006, it was the first time a portrait of a woman had ever been in Manchester Town Hall. And that was 2006. So Margaret Ashton's story, we're really lucky to have the portrait on loan, I should say, very kindly loan to us. The Town Hall is currently closed for renovation, which is why we have the portrait um, and we've been able to loan the portrait. It's great that we have it on display because it really demonstrates the responsibilities of museums and galleries and archives in finding these stories. We did it successfully with Elizabeth Ellen Chatterton, the woman behind the banner, and we're doing it now with Margaret Ashton, a woman so significant to Manchester's radical and suffrage history. It sort of demonstrates that World War One was not kind to all women. World War One had given women the opportunity to step into the shoes of the men, to become the workers, to really demonstrate what they could do. But Margaret Ashton, unfortunately, suffered the consequences of not supporting the war. And as a result, we almost lost her story entirely. The representation of the People Act changed the lives of so many and would change the makeup of Parliament forever. In the next episode, I'll be exploring the vote, what it means to vote now, what it meant to vote then, and what happened when women finally were allowed inside the House of Commons. Thank you for listening and thank you to Chloe for being such a fantastic guest. Represent is on until the 3rd of February 2019 and when you visit make sure you take loads of pictures of the fantastic objects we have and share them with the hashtag represent. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram with the handle PHMMCR. The representation of the People Act changed the lives of so many people and it would change the makeup of Parliament forever. In the next episode, I'll be exploring the votes, what it means to vote now, what it meant to vote then, and what happens when women finally were allowed inside the House of Commons. Thank you for joining me this episode and thank you, Chloe, for being my guest and talking about the incredible conservation that's done at PHM. Thank you. Represent is on until the 3rd of Feb 2019. So when you do come and visit, make sure you share all of your pictures with the hashtag represent. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram with the handle at PHMMCR.